Well, I'd like to turn with you this evening to Psalm 27 and verse 4, where we read this. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me ask you a question. Why have you come here tonight? Why? What brings you into this place? Well, there was one thing and one thing only that drove David. One thing that he was desperate to seek after and he sought after it continually. If I could capture the whole of his life in a phrase or in a simple description, here it was. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Here, if you like, is his epitaph to us tonight. And if the same was said of us, what would the epitaph be? What would the summary be? Would it be, he sought after his own pleasure? He chased after his own dream? I hope not. That would be a dreadful thing to say. Dreadful. If the Lord appeared to you in a dream, as he appeared to Solomon in that extraordinary experience, as he began the monarchy, what would you ask? He says to you, ask what you want, Solomon, and I will give it to you. What would you ask for? Would you ask for health and long life? Would you ask for comfort and wealth? Would you ask for security in the life of your enemies? Or would you, like Solomon, ask for wisdom? For wisdom. And then, in gaining wisdom, he gained all the other three blessings that the Lord spoke about. But you know, David's request is different from Solomon's here. It's simpler. It's deeper. It's even richer, in a sense. What are we seeking after, friends? What's the tenor of our lives? What are we grasping for? What are we aiming for in life? Is it reputation, like King Zedekiah, who lost it, lost everything, lost his kingdom, lost his sons, lost his reputation? His name is a stain in the Bible to us today. Are you looking looking for a wife or a husband? Are you looking for a child? You know, Rachel said to the patriarch Jacob, Give me children or I die. She was so determined to have a child. Are we looking for safety for our children? Are we looking for office? Joab looked for office and again he lost everything. Are we looking for company? Are we looking for insights into the heart? Well, friends, let us have one burning request. One great determination. Let all other considerations be put aside. and Let's share this aspiration of David. One thing have I sought after. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. And he seeks it until he finds it. Now in this request, there are three phrases. There's one big request and really just two consequences or two benefits or two aspects of that request. Let's just consider them very briefly this evening. First of all, he says this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Here is not just a brief sojourn, just a brief visit. This is a keep, this is a stay. This is for keeps. This is for good. The word can mean sit. It can mean return. 
It can mean to settle or to rest. Interestingly, it's the very word from which we get the word Sabbath, a break, a rest, a pause. I wonder, friends, do you feel far from home? Do you feel a bit dislocated? Do you feel a bit disorientated by a modern age, out of touch with your roots, out of touch with the very purpose of your life? Well, follow David, that I may dwell, that I may dwell, and not anywhere, but in the house of the Lord, in the house of Yahweh. Where is our home? Where's our real home? Where's the place our heart yearns to be more than anything else? Where are we supposed to be? Why sometimes do we feel like strangers in our own place? You know, Moses says to us, when you say, where is our home? Or what is our home? We're asking the wrong question. He says, it is God himself who is our home. God himself. In the one psalm that we know was written by him, he starts by saying this. Thou has been our dwelling place from generation to generation. God is our home. God is our high tower. God is our rock. God is our refuge in the storm. He's our shield and strength. And all our contentment is found in him and in him alone. As the prophets say often, he is our portion. He is our inheritance. And... uh, You remember the Lord Jesus when he sees Lazarus go up to heaven. He sees this wonderful picture of Lazarus in the arms of Abraham, his father, his forefather. What a lovely picture. There is Lazarus in Father Abraham's embrace. When the evangelist John depicts the eternal state of the son, he says, the eternal son is in the father's bosom, in his embrace. What closer possible communion and friendship can there be than that? In a tight embrace. So why, friends, are we running away from him? Why are we running away from him? Why are we shy of him? Why is it sometimes when we raise the conversation of God, conversations go silent? We don't like to talk about him. Do you know when I first heard about the way of the gospel? For three years I ran away. For three years I made excuses. For three years I was making, running into the undergrowth of a life away from God. Well, what a tragedy. Here's God's home, his special presence. But you know, it's not enough just to stay at home and say, well, I'm worshipping God at home. You need to be in his home. And in a special way, he is present with his people. Where he is present amongst them, in communion with them. Here is the spirit of his presence. Here is the spirit of his power. I wonder, friends, do you prefer worldly pursuits, chasing after the games, sports, television programs, chasing after the idols of this world, or are you seeking the Lord's presence in his house, in his home? One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord All the days of my life, all the days of my life, all the length of my days. In another place, David says, one day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Better than a thousand. Better than years in the courts of the rich and the wealthy. One day. But here he says, 
I want to be with God and in God and in his dwelling place all my days. All my days. Do you know, if we're connected to the Lord, if we're related to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have this knowledge of him, that relationship, true, a true relationship with him, can never be broken. Not even by death. David is still in his father's house. Still today in his embrace. Even now. Perhaps he sings. Perhaps his spirit rejoices. <laughs> perhaps he's even conscious of us. Who knows? But even now, he's in that relationship with the father. He prayed for it. He sought it. Even now, the author of this psalm, 3,000 years ago, enjoys its fulfilment. But there's one key issue. Do you know him? Do you know him? And does he know you? You know, there are many who go to church. There are many who pray. There are many who sing hymns. There are many who study the Bible. But do they know him? The Lord Jesus says, there will be many in the last day who say to me, Lord, we've done so much. We preached for you. We've been out witnessing in the open air. We've knocked on doors. We prayed. We've even cast out demons and done miracles. And then the Lord Jesus will say to them, Who are you? I never knew you. There was no relationship. There was no deep knowledge of the Saviour. Well, friends, David's not like that. He says, I want to dwell in God. In God's house. And what's he going to do when he gets there? Well, there are two further phrases. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. To behold. This is not a glimpse. This is not a look. This is not a quick look or even a long look. This is a studying. This is an examining of every detail. Drinking it in. Perhaps the dad has been at war. Perhaps he's been sold fighting at the front. The children see him coming back to the front of the house for the first time. And they grab him and they hug him and they kiss him and they all sit down at the table. And then what do the children do? They look at him. They smell him. They study him. They study every feature of his expression. They look at every twitch or mannerism that he's acquired. They study him closely. How has our dad changed? What has this experience meant to him? Or friends, if a dear one has been in hospital, do you not look at them closely up and down? Have they lost weight? they lost hair? Are they thinner than they used to be? (laughs) Are they walking quite as easily as they were? No, friends, we study them. So here David says, I'm going to meditate and reflect on him. His words, his acts, his glorious miracles his answers to prayer for us or even his holding back from answering our prayers and what will I see beauty beauty I will behold the beauty of the Lord all his best beauty is inward of course when we see the Lord Jesus Christ and when those who did see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state they fell down at his feet as though they were dead they saw that outward glory and beauty of Christ and they could, not, they could do nothing but adore him. 
They felt like dead men when they saw him in his glorious state. He is the author of glory. He is the designer of beauty. He is the architect of all majesty and splendor. Surely, friends, there is no beauty, nothing attractive or beautiful or comely at all. And he is not the alpha and the omega of it. He knows all about beauty, but like an oyster and its pearl, his best beauty is inside. His best beauty is within. He's clothed, mostly, most of the time, with modesty. He's robed with simplicity. He's unrecognized, and by the externals, he's unknown. Listen to his voice. He sounds like a bumpkin. He sounds rather rural. Listen to his accent. And is it not a Galilean accent? One of those rather rough ones like Peter, the fisherman? You look at his appearance and he looks like a pauper. This is not some rich prince from a foreign court. Who is this man? And his clothing like a carpenter's. Not a noble or a priest or a king. And yet in this man there is the most extraordinary majesty. No trace of selfishness, no hint of insincerity. Every promise he makes, he keeps. No undertaking that isn't kept. Every word of his was direct and fresh and pure. Every act was kindness. And all his miracles, bar one, one important one as he goes into Jerusalem, every single one of them otherwise is a blessing, unlike the others who went before him. As the soldiers are sent to go and arrest him, they're stopped in their tracks. No one ever spoke like this man. Who is this? Who is this teacher? Who is this man? The ordinary crowds are astonished. They're electrified by his word. The things he says are like fresh water, like living bread, and it's not shallow. It doesn't evaporate after they've gone. It's something deep, something chewable, something you can meditate on and take home and reflect on and find greater depths to, greater levels to. I challenge any one of you, friends, look at John chapter 17. Study it as I have done for the last 30 years. Examine it. Look at those simple words and how can you not possibly marvel? How can you not possibly wonder at the depths and the beauty, the extra facets. Every time I go back to that chapter, that prayer, what amazing depth are found, is found in that simple prayer. And then the, his miracles. They weren't ostentatious. There was no outward performance like the modern healers. There was no roll of the drums, no spotlights, no background music raising to a crescendo. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ stops death in its tracks. He turns back the procession of the dead and turns it into a dance. He dries up the weeping parents' eyes and causes them to sing. He spoke a word and no power of nature, no demon, no possible power can resist his will. Not even death, not even death. Every single one of his miracles, too, is a lesson. It's not given just for the sake of showing his power. Every one of them, as we so often learn here, 
is cram-packed with details to analyse our hearts, to show us the working of sin and of grace, to show us the nature of defilement and its remedy. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ uses sin and the curse of God upon sin as his canvas. And on that canvas, he paints his grace. His uh, wonderful power is against the backdrop of the darkness and the depth of the depravity of this world. And so it is today. If only we seek him, if only we turn to him, he is the sweet dawn to the most despairing of hearts. He is strength and sight and power to the weaklings and, and vision to the blind and help to the crippled. Well, friends, if you look at our finest politicians, if you look at our finest statesmen, if you look at our best artists and poets, the more you look, I'm afraid the less you'll be impressed. Try it. Perhaps to begin with, you'll be impressed a little more. But after a while, the more you look, I fear you'll be disappointed. Whether it's Churchill or Cromwell or King Alfred or any other. Of course, there are many great things to see in any of these and many others. But the more closely you look, I'm afraid the more sin you'll discover. But it's not like that with Christ. The more you turn up the microscope... The more closely examined with a magnifying glass, the more glory there is to see, the more beauty, the more strength. And yet, like his first miracle, the best is yet to come. There is a third phrase in David's petition, and here it is. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And the word in the Hebrew has the sense of inspecting, examining, looking at very closely. But friends, there's a problem. There wasn't a temple. Not when David wrote. David had no temple. He had a tent. In fact, to be precise, he had two tents. One where the Ark of the Covenant rested in Jerusalem and the other where the other aspects of the furniture of the tabernacle which we read about, the candlestick, the table of the showbread, the golden altar and some other things, they were, uh, they were housed elsewhere. Two tents. But David did have something else. He had a plan. He had a pattern. And he gave that pattern, divinely inspired, to his son Solomon for the temple. You know, the word for temple comes from the word for power or to be able. It uh, means a place of power. It is God's throne room. Many times the Hebrew writers describe it as the place of his feet, the place where he rests his feet. And every detail is carefully designed and arranged uh, to provide us with insight into God's plans, into God's person, and into his purposes. And David's wonderful plan for the temple was very like the tabernacle that went before it. There was the Holy of Holies, the place of God himself with the ark, God's own throne as it were. Then there was the table of the daily bread set before him. 
Then there was the Ark of Incense, where the priests would pray and come into the holy place. And then there was the golden candlestick, which gave its light. light. And all this surrounded by images of angels and images of fruitfulness, palm trees. Now, what would David, the prophet, the seer, have been so interested in inquiring in in the temple? What could he see? What could he see with further examination? What could he learn? After all, if he was the, um, the one who conveyed the plan, didn't he, does, wasn't he familiar with it? Didn't he know enough about it already? Was it so complicated that he had to go back to it again and again? Well, friends, there's a little phrase said a thousand years later that shows us just how deep that plan really is. The Lord Jesus turned his enemies in the midst of the temple and he said to them this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Everything, all the things in the temple point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's why David is so interested. It shows us something of redemption. It shows us something of salvation. It shows us something of the Saviour. Something that like a little child creeping over the edge of the fence, straining to see, he longed to understand, but he couldn't see the fullness of it yet. But you know, in the temple, there were many things <clears throat> not seen by the ordinary people. We've already thought about this. There were certain things only seen by the priests. In the passage we read in Numbers 4, the Kohathites were in the same tribe as the priests, the same family in fact, but not of Aaron's lineage, not priests themselves, were not permitted even to see them. Not even to see them, let alone to handle them. The priests had to wrap them up in um, blue cloths and badger skins and other garments before the ordinary Levites could even touch them. And if they did touch them, there was a penalty of death. Well, friends, David was of the tribe of Judah. He had nothing to do with Levi. So what could he look for in the temple? When he went into the temple, what could he see? What did he encounter? Well, there's one thing that he could see, and it's right at the heart of many of the Psalms. And interestingly, it's also at the heart of Ezekiel's vision where he foresees the third temple. And there's an interesting connection between David looking forward and Ezekiel looking forward. And what's that? It's not the ark. Ezekiel makes no mention of that at all. It's not the candlestick. It's not the uh, golden altar or the showbread table. No, Ezekiel makes scarcely, hardly any mention of any of these things. Perhaps one verse to the combination of the table and of the, the golden altar. But there is something right at the heart of the temple that he makes a great deal of mention of. In fact, he spends a whole chapter talking about right at the heart of the Psalms. And it's the altar of sacrifice. Now, what was that, friends? It was the meeting place with God. First of all, the altar was a place of justice. First of all, it was a place of justice. Yes, of justice. The temple could be a fearsome place. It could be a frightening place. It was a place of life and it was a place of death. Come in the wrong way, as Korah later did, and you can end up 
punished and lost and uh, cast out. Come in the wrong way, in the wrong, with the wrong uh, manner of approach, like Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's own sons do. And all oh, friends, you could end up lost and undone. The temple was a place of justice, and the altar was where that justice was executed. It was a place of trembling. But it was also, and usually too, a place of mercy, a place of relief. A place where sin, if you approach God in the right way, could be covered and dealt with. Not with us, not in us, but by the poor one that stood in our place. In the picture of the altar, the animal that the offerer laid his hands upon and confessed his sins over. And there's a wonderful promise there of a new start and of a new heart. And by laying his hands on the animal... And confessing his sin, his sin was taken away. It was a place of communion with God. The beginning of a new start between God and his people. And of course that new beginning needs to happen every week. Almost every time we come before God, we need that renewal and refreshing and fresh forgiveness. Here at the very heart of the temple was the meeting place. Dear friends, what is our meeting place with God? It is the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us if we turn to him, if we seek him. He took upon himself our curse. He bore the awful flames of our hell himself. He was pierced through and cut up with the guilt of our shame. He was abandoned and forsaken, not for his own sins. He had none. For us, if we turn to him, if we seek him, if we trust in him, if we lay our hands on him and confess our sins and renounce them and ask him to take them away forever, here is the altar which is a place for us of access into God's presence, of drawing near to God, a place of God's power to change us and to wash us. But tonight, he calls you to repentance and to trust Tonight, he commands you to partake. He's inviting you to come. He's inviting you to come. He's commanding you to come. The sacrifice is complete. The work is done. The tables are set. Oh, friends, turn away from your sin. Forsake the world. Make God your everlasting home. Look upon his dear son. He has done it. Examine his glorious work from the beginning to the end. Oh, dear friends, will you, like I was, be slow and careless? Will you run away from God yet more years, yet more yet months? Will you make excuses? Dear friends, put away that evil reluctance. Put away that evil, shameful unbelief. And like David, say, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray together.